It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning on this Monday, October 23rd. I'm Michael Guidry. This is MPB Think Radio. It's 8 o'clock. Coming up in our newscast in four minutes, local church congregations and the Biloxi chapter of the NAACP gathered this weekend for rallies and a voter registration drive. Y'all are not just in an election. You are in a history-making moment. You have a chance in this state to prove that the South can rise anew. And coming up on Morning Edition, scores of people in Patterson, New Jersey, turned out for what was described as an emergency rally for Gaza. The neighborhood is home to one of the largest Palestinian populations in the United States. You're listening to Morning Morning Edition here on MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The Israel Defense Forces say they conducted more than 300 airstrikes in Gaza today. The news comes as Palestinian health authorities say more than 5,000 people have died from Israeli strikes in Gaza. NPR's Peter Kenyon has more from Jerusalem. Reports from Palestinian media say the Gaza airstrikes focused on the central and northern parts of the Gaza Strip. A strike on one house near the Jabalia refugee camp reportedly killed several Palestinians. An Israeli soldier was killed by an anti-tank missile in Gaza. In the West Bank, a raid on a refugee camp north of Ramallah left two Palestinians dead, according to the Palestinian Ministry of Health. More than 70 Palestinians were arrested in the West Bank overnight. Another 14 trucks loaded with humanitarian aid reached the Gaza Strip late Sunday. Aid workers say the amount being delivered is severely inadequate to meet current needs. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Jerusalem. Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte is the latest European official to visit Israel. Terry Schultz reports this comes as European Union foreign ministers are meeting in Luxembourg. Prime Minister Rutte says he'll seek clarification from the Israeli government on how a Dutch citizen died in Gaza, where she'd gone to visit family just before the outbreak of the war. Rutte also called for a humanitarian pause in fighting to get aid to trapped civilians. EU Foreign Policy Chief Joseph Burrell said foreign ministers would discuss the lack of access for aid deliveries. I don't want to put the blame on anyone, but the fact is that uh, they are not entering. While some EU officials have been criticized recently that their statements seem to downplay the plight of Palestinian civilians, Burrell underscored Palestinians are also victims of Hamas and that the loss of every civilian should be of equal concern. For NPR News, I'm Terry Schultz. House Republicans will meet behind closed doors today to listen to nine GOP lawmakers who are running to be the next Speaker of the House. The last GOP pick, Representative Jim Jordan, withdrew last Friday after he lost increasing Republican support in votes on the House floor. NPR's Domenico Montanaro says it's hard to say who will win because hard-right Republicans and GOP pragmatists cannot seem to agree. The pragmatists in the party want to fund the wars in Ukraine and Israel, keep the government open. Without funding, it'll shut down in less than three weeks. And all of this drama really is, though, a reflection of the divide within the Republican Party since the rise of Trump, its continued grip on the heart of the party, and the battle for what it's going to be. NPR's Domenico Montanaro reporting. New Jersey Senator Robert Menendez is scheduled to appear in U.S. federal court today in New York. He faces several corruption charges. A fresh indictment accuses the New Jersey Democrat and his wife of acting as agents of the Egyptian government. Menendez is expected to enter a plea today. He has maintained his innocence, but many Senate Democrats are calling on him to resign. On Wall Street and pre-market trading, stocks are lower. 
This is NPR. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation. For more than 95 years, supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society. More at Mott.org. And the listeners who support this NPR station. Good morning. It's 8.04 on Monday, October 23rd. I'm Michael Guidry. This is MPB News. Church congregations in the Biloxi chapter of the NAACP gathered this weekend for rallies and a voter registration drive two weeks before the November 7th general election. As MPB's Michael McEwen reports, their goal was to highlight the power of poor, low-wealth voters, especially in the South. Dozens of people are seated in pews at the First Missionary Baptist Church of Biloxi, for a get-out-the-vote rally and campaign strategy planning session. The crowd was led through prayer, hymns, and an educational session relating to the importance of voting. Eula Crowell is a community leader in Biloxi and a member of the church. We are here because we want a new day in Mississippi. And the only way that we can do that new day is we have to get out and V-O-T-E. That's where a vote. She was joined by the day's keynote speaker, Bishop William T. Barber II, co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign. He said that by centering voter registration efforts in the hands of community churches like First Baptist, among other organizations, Mississippi could shake off the red state label that has defined its politics for decades. I came to tell you all, Pastor Dickett, y'all got about 100 folk in here tonight, you can take Biloxi. With a methodology, you can actually reach every voter that has not voted in this city through technology and other things, you can touch them. Barber's visit was part of a larger regional tour emphasizing why participation in elections is important. Michael McEwen, MPB News. A canine police dog's attack on a black motorist in Ohio is resurrecting questions about race relations and law enforcement tactics. Jadarius Rose was driving his 18-wheeler through rural Ohio on July 4th when a missing mud flap caught the eye of a highway patrol officer. Rose was attacked by a police dog after he eventually pulled over. Since then, some say the images reminded them of the civil rights movement when authorities turned dogs on peaceful black protesters. Rose required hospital care. The police officer who handled the dog has since been fired, but a city council member says police still haven't explained the case. Mississippi federal prosecutors say they've now convicted all 37 people facing charges in connection with a deadly prison-based gang. Prosecutors say the Simon City Royals had members and associates throughout Mississippi and Louisiana. Many of those convicted faced charges in a racketeering indictment involving murder, kidnapping, robbery, extortion, drugs, and other crimes. A local fog advisory is in effect from the National Weather Service in New Orleans for much of coastal Mississippi. Some clouds uh, this morning across the state with current temperatures in the upper 50s to mid-60s. Expecting a mostly sunny day throughout with some exceptions in north Mississippi. Highs ranging from the lower 80s in north Mississippi, mid-80s in southern Mississippi, and the upper 80s in the central part of the state. This is MPB News on Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. You're listening to Morning Edition. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington. And I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. The U.N. says 34 aid trucks went into Gaza over the weekend. The convoys carried the first humanitarian aid to Gaza since Hamas fighters launched their attack on Israel just over two weeks ago. Lynn Hastings is the U.N. humanitarian coordinator for the occupied Palestinian territory. Um, thanks for joining us. First, President Biden says that he and Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu have affirmed, as he put it, a continued flow of critical aid to Palestinians in need. How confident are you that a continued flow of food, water, and medical supplies is actually a reality? In terms of 34 trucks, obviously, that's a drop in the bucket in terms of what is needed. And we are pushing for increasing and sustained trucks going in every day. Um, While we welcome the fact that 34 trucks went in and another 20 should be going in today, it's not nearly enough. At minimum, how many trucks of aid would be helpful? At this point, as much as we can get in, I don't want to give a specific number. All we can say at the moment is that 20 a day is wholly insufficient in terms of the needs. Gaza has not had any water flowing, nor electricity, nor fuel. 
um, food is in very short supply. Medicines are pretty well out. And I just want to emphasize to your listeners that fuel is needed for hospitals to run, for those thousands who have been injured, now over 13,000 to actually receive assistance, for desalination plants to run, and Gaza relies largely on desalinated or bottled water. And of course, if we get aid in, but our trucks don't have any fuel to deliver assistance throughout Gaza, then the uh, aid that we are pushing to get in won't be able to be distributed. And if fuel were brought in, how could there be a guarantee that it would not wind up being used for weapons? Sure. And that's an important point. It's something that the UN has worked with the Israelis for well over a decade in terms of bringing it in in a secured fashion. And we are in negotiations and discussions with the Israelis right now to ensure that the mechanisms that are used will continue to make sure that the fuel goes to the UN agencies, the hospitals, the desalination plants. Now, Israel has stepped up its bombing campaign against Hamas over the weekend. If they were to move to a ground invasion, how would that change the flow of aid into Gaza? Well, obviously, if there's airstrikes, that brings certain challenges, and then the ground invasion does as well. All member states have to abide by rules of conflict. There are rules to wars. The government of Israel would be required and is required, regardless of whether or not it's airstrikes or ground invasions, to allow humanitarians to deliver assistance. We call them humanitarian ceasefires, humanitarian pauses, humanitarian corridors. But we would be expecting to be able to deliver throughout Gaza where there are needs, regardless of the type of incursion. But is Hamas bound by those rules of war? Yes. Not just member states, but armed groups that form... Um, I have certain indicators in accordance with international law. Again, I won't bore you with the details, but yes. Now, you have another role within the UN as a representative to the Middle East peace process. Um, How far away does peace look and feel to you right now? Well, even before October 7th, and I do just want to highlight the fact that, of course, the United Nations is calling for the release of those hostages. We have repeatedly condemned what happened on October 7th, and those hostages should be released immediately and unconditionally, just as humanitarian aid needs to go in uh, immediately and unconditionally. But even before October 7th, the peace process itself seemed very, very, very remote. So it obviously seems even more remote now. What we need right now is a humanitarian ceasefire, a ceasefire so that we can get back on some semblance of dialogue. That's Lynn Hastings, UN Humanitarian Coordinator for the Occupied Palestinian Territory. Thank you very much uh, for sharing this information with us. Thank you. For many Americans, the Hamas attack on Israel and Israel's airstrikes on Gaza are personal. Patterson, New Jersey is more than 5,000 miles away. And it's home to a large Palestinian-American community where many have family and friends in the war zone. Harrison Malkin of NJPBS reports. Noor Abu Sharia has a personal connection to the war in Gaza. Her 17-year-old cousin, Hala. She has kept me updated on how supermarket shelves have been empty and how there is no electricity. Abu Sharia was among nearly a dozen speakers who expressed support for Palestinian rights and called for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. A once vibrant and lovely 17-year-old Palestinian girl feels a sense of hopelessness, especially after losing her aunt and cousin in a single airship. The Palestinian American Community Center organized the event, and local chapters of Black Lives Matter and Jewish Voice for Peace joined them on Palestine Way in the city's Little Ramallah. Protesters numbered at least a thousand, according to the mayor's office. Teenagers waved Palestinian flags from a rooftop as the marchers passed. Rallies here have become a major form of pushback toward the Israeli military's actions and the U.S. government's support. They have also provided solace for community members, like Ahmed Katanani, a resident doctor at Hackensack University Medical Center. I tried to put down into words what to say, and I couldn't. My family lost 15 people in one airstrike last week. 
I don't know any other loved ones there that live in Gaza anymore. We don't know who to contact. There are more protests expected to come. For NPR News, I'm Harrison Malkin in Patterson, New Jersey. Here in Washington, House Republicans hold a candidate forum today. They hear from as many as nine lawmakers who would like to replace the ousted Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Two would-be replacements receive support from a majority of Republicans, but not enough to form a majority of the House. That's the problem, and that's why Republican Congressman Mike Flood wants his colleagues to sign a unity pledge to support whoever Republicans nominate this time. Mike Flood is on the line. He's a former radio broadcaster in Nebraska, so we expect an excellent conversation. Good morning, sir. Hey, good morning. What is the concept? Well, you know, a majority party is only a majority party when it votes as a majority. I mean, that's as simple as it gets. And for over 200 years, we have in the Republican conference and quite frankly, the Democratic conference have selected a speaker among ourselves. And then we go to the uh, the floor and we vote in unison to elect that speaker. What we have now is a complete breakdown of what we've done for 200 years. And so the unity pledge simply says, we're going to support the candidate for speaker that wins the majority of the votes in our conference when we get to the floor. Um, it's so I, something we've done for 200 years. It's simple, but unfortunately, it's necessary. I, I guess we should note that over the past 200 years, there have been different political parties and some fractured and many, many ballot speaker races. But you are broadly correct, of course. Uh, here's the problem, though. You've gotten nearly all the candidates to sign this, but you would need almost all Republicans, period, to sign this pledge for it to be effective. Are you going to get nearly all Republicans to sign this? Well, practically, I don't think so, um, to be honest. However, here's what I say. I'm withholding my vote until I see who brings who to the table. The Mike Floods of the world, the Brad Finsteads, the people that I sit with in conference, we are the easy ones to get because we're always going to vote for the majority. There's there's well over 190 of us that are subscribing to this thought. There's apparently uh, up to 40 people that have one time or the other since January not voted on the floor with the majority candidate uh, when we get there. And for me, my standard, uh, and in a slim majority, my vote matters, my standard is who can you bring to the table? Show me that Matt Gates will come to the table and sign the pledge. That tells me that you are uh, someone that can demonstrate leadership. Because in a month, we're going to expect whoever the speaker is to deliver votes for the NDAA, uh, National Defense Authorization Act, or the Farm Bill. If you want this job, you have to be able to show that you can move people. And that is my standard. I want a leader. I I, want somebody that brings people to the table. I understand what you're saying when you're saying, I I want to vote for a speaker candidate who can bring Matt Gates to the table. But doesn't that mean that Matt Gates gets to control the House of Representatives? Well, by any uh, stretch of the truth, he has. I mean, the the reality is we need everybody to be on the same page. We need everybody to be um, in in line together so that we can move things. That's one of the reasons I supported Jim Jordan. Jim Jordan, whether some of my colleagues like it or not, could bring people like that to the table. And if we don't have everybody at the table, we don't have a majority. Let me when just you ask have you, a five seat. I'm sorry to majority, interrupt. That's what it takes. I'm sorry, Congressman. Time's a little short. I just want to interrupt here a little bit to follow up on this. Paul Ryan, the former House Speaker, was on CNBC the other day and referred to the eight holdouts who unseated Speaker McCarthy as eight nihilists, people who stand for nothing. And he's made repeated statements that a lot of Republicans don't stand for any policy. You can't unite around a policy. They only stand for an attitude. Isn't that a fundamental problem that your party has right now? There are a lot of problems we have, and uh, that would be a concern. But if we're going to be a majority, we have to vote like a majority. And that means we have to find a candidate that can bring us together. And I have to think out of 222 people, we can find somebody. If you were to threaten to unite with Democrats, wouldn't that bring some Republicans on board? Well, people in November elected a majority of Republicans to lead the House of Representatives. I think it's incumbent upon us to act as the majority and find a speaker that does bring us together. And by the way, in January, when Kevin McCarthy got there, we did a lot of that until the wheels fell off. So we were able to do that. Congressman Mike Flood of Nebraska, it's a pleasure to talk with you this morning. Thanks so much. Yes, have a good day. 
This is NPR News. And this is MPB Think Radio on this Monday, October 23rd. It is 819. I'm Michael Gidrin for Desiree Frazier. It is going to be unseasonably warm today. Highs expected to reach the 80s throughout the state. Upper 80s, central Mississippi, mid 80s, northern Mississippi, and south Mississippi. Right now, it's a little on the cooler side, some cloud covers throughout. Olive Branch 59, Oxford 61, Pascagoula 62, Vicksburg 63. Coming up in 10 minutes on Mississippi Edition, national shortages of ADHD medication are preventing many Mississippians from getting treatment. Then lawmakers are meeting with corrections officers to see how the state can improve the prison system. Plus, voting rights advocates say one of the most powerful voting blocks in the state is among the low income. That's coming up in 10 minutes. We hope you stick around. This is MPB Think Radio. You're listening to Morning Edition. Want to keep up with MPB? Go to mpbonline.org. Or you can find us on social media on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at MPB Online. Start your work week with a morning of locally produced programs on MPB Think Radio. Catch up with the latest Mississippi news on Mississippi Edition at 8.30. At 9, it's Deep South Dining featuring conversations about Southern cuisine. Hear interviews with interesting Mississippians on Now You're Talking at 10. And at 11, there's information on leading a healthy life on Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit. This is MPB Think Radio. Mississippi is our mission. Support for NPR comes from this station and from CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. From the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia, for 30 years committed to advancing educational innovations and research that improves pre-K-12 learning. More at edutopia.org. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. On this day, 25 years ago, violence between Israelis and Palestinians did not feel inevitable, and peace seemed almost within reach. Benjamin Netanyahu was Israel's prime minister back in 1998, just as he is again today. Yasser Arafat spoke for Palestinians when Netanyahu and Arafat met in rural Maryland to hammer out a pathway toward peace. President Bill Clinton served as their mediator, and the two sides came up with what is called the Y River Memorandum. Israel agreed to give Palestinians control over additional parts of the West Bank. And in exchange, Palestinians would take specific steps to prevent attacks on Israeli civilians. At the signing event, Netanyahu sounded optimistic. Today is a day when Israel and our entire region are more secure. Now, this is required sacrifice from both sides and reaching into what Lincoln called the better nature of mankind. Arafat, through an interpreter, affirmed that. We are fully committed to whatever is required from us in order to achieve real security and constant peace for every Israeli person. The Y River Memorandum had widespread support inside and outside Israel, but attacks on Israelis continued And within months, Netanyahu suspended the agreement as well as the promises made on that day. When the great American musical theater lyricist and composer Stephen Sondheim died two years ago, he left behind an unfinished work. The show, called Here We Are, opened off-Broadway last night. Jeff London spoke with the collaborators about how they were able to finish the show without Sondheim. 
In September of 2021, Stephen Sondheim appeared on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert and dropped some news that set the theater world buzzing. I've been working on a show for a couple of years with a playwright named David Ives. Mm -hmm. It's called Square One. We had a reading of it last week and we were encouraged. So we're going to go ahead with it and with any luck we'll get it on next season. Two months later, the 91-year-old composer-lyricist died. And so, too, it seemed, did the project, which had about a half-dozen songs for the first act and almost nothing for the second. But Sondheim's partners, David Ives and director Joe Mantello, kept pushing for a production. Square One became Here We Are, and audiences have been flocking to see what Sondheim was up to in the last years of his life, says cast member Dennis O'Hare. Looking at the audience every single night, looking at their faces as we sing, you realize that no one has heard this. There is no album. There is no recording. They have no idea what's coming. They sit there, you know, blank, waiting to be filled. I couldn't be more sorry, madam. But sad to say, the fact is that not only do we have no soy. Oh, boy. Don't tell me that you have, have no, no mocha. Then just a decaf We're also latte. Out of lattes. We do expect a little latte later, but we haven't got the latte latte now. David Ives began working with Stephen Sondheim in 2010 on a different project, but when that fell by the wayside, Sondheim mentioned an idea of combining two surrealistic Luis Buñuel films into a full-length musical. The first act would be based on the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie, where six friends go in search of a meal and get stymied along the way. The second act would be based on the exterminating angel, where the same group would have a meal but be inexplicably unable to leave the room where they've gathered. The first act is light, the second act is dark, says Ives. I think part of what appealed to Steve about these was that they don't on the surface seem to sing. And I think that's part of what interested him, was that it was going to be a challenge. Director Joe Mantello went to a reading of the show in 2016 and says he fell in love with it when he heard the first song, and then went back to watch the films. I remember uh, Steve said to me once we were working on something and we got stuck, and he said, well, what did you think when you saw the films? What was your response to them? And I said, I thought, who the blank thought this would be a good idea for a musical. <laughs> and while the dark, strange subject matter appealed to Sondheim, he had real problems writing the songs, says David Ives. He was a master procrastinator, and he also was aware of his age. Also, you have to consider the fact that he was in his 80s working on a musical about going into a room that you can't get out of. And I think that subconsciously it must have preyed upon him. It was Joe Mantello who came up with the solution, that at a certain point in the second act, there would be no music since the characters are literally stuck. You know, I said to him, I think you're done. If you choose to be done, I can make an intellectual case as to why they should stop singing doesn't mean that everyone's going to find that satisfying, but there's a real reason for it. There's an idea behind it. It is intentional. Sondheim agreed to give it a try. That was the version of the show he was talking about on Colbert. But a major part of the creative process is writing and rewriting during rehearsals and previews. Sondheim's collaborators say they miss having him in the room. David Ives. He would be delighted, I think. He would have notes, as always, and, and thoughts. Director Joe Mantello says everyone involved with Here We Are feels an enormous responsibility to deliver the work as Sondheim left it. You know, I think Steve, his love of puzzles was so well known, and I think he left us a puzzle. But he gave us all the pieces. And it's been thrilling and satisfying, and sometimes David and I have felt lonely. We've missed his presence, but he left us all the pieces. For NPR News, I'm Jeff London in New York. 
This is NPR News. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. This forecast is underwritten by Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Mississippi. Smarter, better health care. More at bcbsms.com. Our only weather concern for this morning will be some dense fog across the Gulf Coast. Other than that, we're looking at a pretty decent go of it with warm temperatures. Horn Lake, more clouds than sunshine today. Our high this afternoon near 85. We'll see clouds overnight lows near 65 later tonight. Jackson, lots of sunshine. Our high today in the upper 80s. Tonight we will see a partly cloudy sky. Overnight lows into the low 60s. And in Biloxi, we're expecting to see some fog that could be dense in some spots where visibility could be down to a quarter mile or less. Otherwise, increasing sunshine mid-80s today. Tonight, a mainly clear to partly cloudy sky. Overnight lows into the lower 60s. I'm meteorologist Sally Russell. This is Think Radio. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Monday, October 23rd. I'm Michael Guidry in for Desiree Frazier, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, national shortages of ADHD medication are preventing many Mississippians from getting their treatments. Then lawmakers are meeting with corrections officers to see how the state can improve the prison system. Plus, voting rights advocates say one of the most powerful voting blocks in Mississippi is among the low income. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. State lawmakers are meeting with corrections, officials, advocates, and experts in reentry. They're asking how Mississippi can help former inmates get stable jobs once they get out of prison. Democratic Senator Juan Barnett of Heidelberg chairs the Senate Corrections Committee. He says one of the most pressing issues for people being released from prison is finding housing in their area. And we want to start trying to work on legislations to address um, transitional housing because we do know that that's that's part of reentry as well, is to make sure that we provide some good places uh, and not confined to one particular part of the state. But we're going to try to utilize as much of the state as we can to make sure that people can return closer to their families or closer to their homes or closer to jobs if they're able to find work uh, when they are released versus keeping them in a particular area. Um, and then having to leave that area and go somewhere else without having anywhere to stay. The Mississippi Department of Corrections has started to build out a number of transitional houses throughout the state, but these facilities require the support of local churches and communities to operate. There are some larger facilities in central Mississippi, but Senator Barnett says there needs to be a larger network of transitional homes throughout the state. Okay, and based on... <clears throat> What I'm, what I'm seeing here, we have sober living, crossroads, and new way. And, and that's the reason why we're having these meetings is because when we just look at these three places that we have here and location, we realize that these are all centered in and around the Jackson area. So it limits individuals from having the opportunity uh, to go anywhere else, if that makes sense to everyone. And so, again, that's my whole purpose is to make sure that our transitional housing or these places that we have that can assist, again, are not confined to one area of the state of Mississippi. Because we do know that everyone that's been released that may not have our address to go to are not necessarily from Rankin or Hines or Madison County. And I think that has been a problem that we have, and, and, and I'm sure someone will, will speak on this later. You know, we may have people that have absconded uh, and now find themselves back because they didn't have an address to go to or anything else when, when it was released, and now they find themselves back in the custody of the Department of Corrections. So, again, going forward, I just want to make sure that, that we try to tap into every possible place around the state that we possibly can. And, and I see here, and thank the young lady again for reaching out to DePaul for having this, but I do think that we have enough capable uh, 
entities and individuals within the state of Mississippi who have more vested in their communities that we should be trying um, to reach out to to help with this. Another factor that could make it easier for inmates to reintegrate into society is by giving them the skills they need to get a job. That's according to Corrections Commissioner Burl Kane. He says MDOC is working to build up those programs to help more inmates find new careers that will help them get a better footing in life. Our well and schools are working right now, and also our we just opened a cosmetology school, the forklift school working for women and for men. So these schools are in operation, and uh at some point, we'll, we have a video that shows you all the different schools that's operating at this point. So there's about 1,700 inmates being paid now to uh, go to school and to work, and these schools are skills and trades, and Brad is working really hard with us to find them jobs. So we, gotta, we can get out of prison and get, do all the soft skills we want, but if we don't match you up with an employer, you're not going to get a job because of your felony. And so that's what we're trying to get around by having actual job seekers, we call them, to go out and find a job, match him up with a job. The probation guy is going to be there with him. He's going to work with Nathan to see that he stays on a job. He gets drug tested and try to assure the employer that he's going to be a worthy employee, that we're going to monitor and keep control of him as long as he's on parole. We're going to hold him accountable on this job. So we have to have jobs to cut our recidivism rate. And that's what we're going to do. Burl Kane is the commissioner of the Mississippi Department of Corrections. Coming up, national shortages of ADHD medication are preventing many Mississippians from getting their treatments. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. MPB Think Radio. Whatever your taste, news, music, storytelling, or how-to shows. Whatever your city, Gulfport, Fernando, Meridian, Greenville. However you want. Radio, smart speaker, smartphone app. MPB Think Radio. There are many ways to support the programs you love on MPB. Becoming a member, starting a monthly gift, donate a vehicle you don't need anymore, and now donating a piece of land or other real estate. To learn more about the advantages of donating real estate, just click Donate Now from mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Michael Guidry. A national shortage of ADHD medication is preventing many Mississippians from accessing the care they need. The pills commonly referred to by brand name Adderall have been in short supply by manufacturers. Mississippi pharmacies may not be able to get the medication for days, and these delays are compounded for patients. Dr. Richard Ogletree is president of the Mississippi Pharmacist Association. He says the medicine is highly regulated by the government as a controlled substance, but is also an essential tool for many people to function in their daily lives. One of the most unreliable, least reliable um, forms is something that goes by the brand name of Adderall. Generically, it is called mixed amphetamine salts. And that one is very commonly used, and it comes in multiple strengths, and it's a very common drug, both in the immediate release form and in the long-acting form. That one is one that is not always available at the wholesalers. A pharmacy might be able to order some today, but tomorrow might not be able to order it because it has been a little bit we'll say spotty, availability goes through the wholesalers. And so that has been a bit of a problem because a medication like this would be considered a maintenance medication. The people who use this will use it every day. If it's a school-age child, they might use it every day that they have school. They may or may not use it on the weekend. But it's a drug that... It's not an as-needed drug that you just use on certain days. So that has been a little bit troublesome, not being able to reliably have access to it. These medications are used to help with what's called, you know, ADHD, ADD, that's that's children or people who have difficulty maintaining attention on the task at hand. 
And a lot of times impulsivity or restlessness is uh, manifested in the same in the same people. You said they can be spotty at times. Some of, some of the strengths, this particular medication is usually bought, usually supplied as a, as a generic medication, um, the methamphetamine sauce. The branded Adderall is really, really expensive, several hundred dollars versus um, quite a bit less than that for generic. So the generic is what is typically used. But that being said, the brand name is in short supply as well, an unreliable supply, and the generic is in unreliable supply. Uh, what makes that even more troubling is a lot of people get used to a particular brand, and they might have a brand that's round this time, or someone else might take one that is oblong. And different ones have different benefits for different people. So there might be some people that do better with the round ones and other people that do better with the oblong one. And even if it's available, it might be the different form than the one that has typically been the most benefit for that particular patient. So sometimes it's available, but it's not the one, the particular version that has worked the best for that person in the past. But the availability is the biggest thing. Can we get it? Will we be able to get it next week? Uh, one of the other things that's of concern here is that these particular medications, because of their regulatory status, are not typically filled early. So that being the case, someone who's down to their last week of the medication, they might not be able to go ahead and get the next supply because those are watched very carefully by regulatory bodies, and the pharmacies know that, so they don't typically fill them that early. If it were a blood pressure medicine and you're down to your last week, you'd go ahead and order it and then go ahead and get it ready, um, because these blood pressure medicines are not regulated in the same fashion that a lot of the ADHD drugs are regulated. Okay. Is, is Adderall the only version of ADHD medication that, that's seeing these supply issues, or are there others? There are probably others. And, I, and to be honest, with the dexmethylphenidate, um, that would be the Focalin-type drugs. Those, I'm guessing that is more of a, um, of a response to that shortage of Adderall. Now, that has more people shifting over to Focalin, and that has put pressure on their supply because, you know, these drug supplies run very close. You don't want to make too many of them um, and have too much on the shelf. So they make a typical supply. Well, if one agent, for instance, Adderall, is no longer available, some of the pediatricians will start using Focalin. And if that happens too many times, now all of a sudden you can't get the focal. Um, and so this is common. It's also common for if, uh, and we see this with a lot of medications, where one particular supplier has problems where they can't supply that drug, but if there are other manufacturers or suppliers, that puts pressure on all the other suppliers because they have to meet the demand that that other one could, and so we're, so that's my that would be my thought as to how that's happening. I did not look at the to be honest, I did not look at the supplies of dexmethylphenidate in the wholesalers. But if one agent is not available, then that can make the other agents become in limited supply because they're used to to fill the void left by the void that's having the water or ones that are not available. All right. Does that make sense? That is, then that's perfect. Um, thank you, Dr. Ogletree. Um, I appreciate this. And kind of getting understanding of it is very helpful. Thank you so much. Okay. Take care now. Dr. Richard Ogletree is president of the Mississippi Pharmacist Association. Coming up, voting rights advocates say one of the most powerful voting blocks in Mississippi is among the low income. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Richard Gershon, the host of In Legal Terms and a professor at the University of Mississippi School of Law. 
If you miss a live and legal terms episode, find our podcast in legalterms.mpbonline.org. Why listen to Write On Mississippi? It was important for me to write this, write real stories about people from these communities and do it in a way that's creative, inventive, that captures the wonder of the ways I grew up and what better way with ghosts. Write On Mississippi, a podcast. Download now at mpbonline.org from the Mississippi Book Festival and MPB. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Michael Guidry. The NAACP of Biloxi, along with national organizations, held an event this weekend on the Gulf Coast to meet with low-income Mississippians and encourage them to vote. Around one-third of Mississippians are considered low-income, and many issues on the ballot could directly affect their lives each year. Bishop William Barber is president of the Repairs of the Breach, a national organization focused on engaging with low-income Americans. He tells our Kobe Vance a united voting block of low-income Mississippians would be a powerful voice. The rationale for this is that in America now, for a low-wealth person to make up more than 140 million people prior to COVID, that's over 43% of the adult population, 50% of the children. In this one-third of all poor and low-wealth Americans uh, live in uh, the South. Poverty now is the fourth leading cause of death in this country, uh, higher than respiratory disease, higher than gun violence. We also know that there are 87 million people in this country who make who, who are either uninsured or underinsured. States like Mississippi and the Deep South are states where you have a large number of uninsured people where the government has chosen not to even expand Medicaid to its poor, low-income, working, uh, low-wage workers. But in the midst of all of this, uh, in the midst of there not being one county in the United States where a person can make the current minimum wage and afford a basic two-bedroom apartment, in the midst of a, a country where over 50 million people make less than a living wage of at least $15 an hour, a wage that was actually proposed in, at the March of Washington in 1963 when they called for a 75% increase in minimum wage up to $2, which indexed with inflation would be over $15 uh, an hour today. And even in the midst of a situation where many and most of the extremists who call themselves Republicans in the South claim that they care about their people, but they choose to focus in on cultural wars, trying to divide people against the gay community, against women's rights, against history and black history. They do that to deflect from the fact that they don't want people to know that they also vote against living wages. They vote against health care. They literally vote against the lives of their own people. We call it policy violence or policy murder. If this block were to come together, what do you think it could do in Mississippi to make change? Well, if this block would come together, and not just come together around personality, but around principles and policy, this block could say, we're not voting for anybody that's going to run for office, and then when they get into office, they're going to block living wages that millions of Mississippians need. Over 50% of Mississippians who make less than a living wage. We're not going to do that because we know that when you can't don't make enough money to pay your light bill and your lights get cut off, we're all black in the dark. Uh, we're not going to vote for persons who run for office and tell us to hate gay people and, and discount black history and be against a woman's right to choose. At the same time, you're blocking health care for the thousands and thousands of people in Mississippi who need health care and who die from the lack of health care. But, if you if you offer those things, we will vote for you, and we have the power to determine not only at large elections, but even elections that are, are district. And it's all over uh, in North Carolina, for instance. It would only take 19 percent of poor and low wealth voters who have not voted uh, uh, to, to vote and change, you know, at large elections. In Florida, it's three percent. In places like Mississippi, it's almost between 12 and 13 percent. In Michigan, it's 1%. So poor and low-wealth voters 
Catholic power coming together around a, a, a policy agenda that says it is, it, is, it is a violation of our Constitution and a violation of the moral principles of faith to get power and then block people from having a living wage, block people from having health care, block people from child income tax credit, block people from the basic essentials of life. And we're going to be a voting block that says no to this. And they could actually determine who sits in office. I wanted to also just talk about the hurdles that comes for many of the people in this block. Uh, many low-income families might struggle to get out to the polls in the first place, not necessarily because of their choice, but because they can't take off work. What would you say to them, uh, people who are in that situation? Well, this is why, for instance, we must also know that in these numbers, the majority of them are white, right, poor and low-wealth voters. So it's not just black folk, it's poor and low-wealth white voters, Latino and whatnot. We did an analysis called Wake and Sleep and Job, a study, and it said the number one reason that poor and low-wealth voters don't vote is nobody talks to them. It wasn't even transportation. It was, it was politicians that ignore them and don't talk to them. They don't even talk about when they run for office, when's the last time you had a governor run for office or a president and then a presidential or gubernatorial debate, they had to answer how they would address crimes, how they would address low wages. What we should be doing is expanding the opportunity to vote. The voting day should be a holiday. We should have same-day registration, early voting across the South. But the same persons that attack women, attack the LGBTQI community, attack black history and black remembrance, and wokeism, who vote against living wages, vote against health care, are the same ones that vote against voting rights. What we have to do is get low-income voters of all race, creed, and color to understand this. Do whatever you have to do to get off work and vote. If you have to take the time, do it. If you have to get up early, early, early in the morning and stand there and be at the polls, vote first, and then go to work. But what you can't do is sit out. Because you hold the key all across this country, especially in the South, to electoral politics in our time. That's Bishop William Barber, president of Repairers of the Breach. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.